You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Holy Word to the 39th Psalm. The 39th Psalm. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Yahweh, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O my Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, for those of us that might at times read David's words and think ourselves superior, more pious, better guarded with our tongues, <laughs> expose our folly. Father, for those whose soul is burdened, who are in the midst of a trial, or even your discipline and chastening, and they feel 
heavy your hand upon their soul this morning. Father, may they find. May they find a lament here that they can sing in David's words. That will move them to a place of stillness of soul, resting and trusting in you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In this psalm, we see David both silent and speaking. The real question is, when was he sinning? Was it when he was silent? Was it when he was speaking? When was David saintly? Was it when he was silent? Or when he was speaking? And the easy answer would appear to be that he was saintly when he was silent and sinning whenever he was speaking. But remember, David's son would go on to say, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips... He's deemed intelligent. Well, he's thought to be, but that doesn't necessarily make him so. It's not always the silent man that's the smart man. And the same is true concerning our sanctification. Mere silence is not an indication of sanctification. And then further, if David was sinning when he spoke, it really makes it hard for Israel to sing this song. Makes it hard for us. So, when was David sinning? I say, it was both when he was silent and when he was speaking. When was David saintly? It was both when he was silent and when he was speaking. In 2004, Carl Truman wrote a little article with a provocative title that caused a lot of buzz. The title, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? What can they sing? Where there is a dearth in contemporary music, there is a wealth in the Psalms. A wealth which we largely ignore, and a wealth which if we ceased to ignore, we could not exhaust. And a great chunk of this wealth that we have is lament. But if you simply just go about thinking that David's silence here was saintly, while his speaking was sinful, you can't sing. You're robbed. Whenever David speaks, especially in such manner as this, don't think yourself more pious. Don't wonder, boy, I don't know that I could say that. If David is more open and bold than I am, I know it's not because he's sinning where I have grown in sanctification beyond him. It's because I'm the greater hypocrite. He's more open and bold because of his deeper level of communion and intimacy with the Lord. So if you're a miserable saint this morning, 
and you don't want to play pious. If you're a miserable soul, and you want to be honest both before the Lord and before the congregation, there's good news for you today. You have a song. A song from the Lord. Now you may have been longing for a truth that will make you sing a new song this morning. A song of deliverance and praise. But here you have a lament for your misery. And it's a song that every one of us would do well to learn. And it's a song that many of us perhaps should be singing if we would take an honest assessment of our soul this morning. Our psalm opens with David vowing and making a resolution with himself to guard his mouth. He said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. What's this silence that David is aiming for? What is it about? James tells us that we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. So is this a radical attempt at perfection? An attempt to avoid all sin by avoiding all speaking? We may think that idea silly, but how often is that our approach in matters of sin in our life? We think by some severity of the body to our body, we can somehow crucify the flesh. That this is a, an impulse that we have can be seen in Paul's words to the Colossians. These, these kind of attempts indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The Cistercian monk's vow of silence is a false act of piety. It is impotent asceticism. It doesn't deal with the issue. So I seriously doubt David's silence was an attempt of this sort. I doubt that David was was giving out orders, writing them on a tablet the way Zechariah did. Avoiding all speaking. David wasn't making a vow to avoid speech altogether here. There's a particular kind of speech that he wants to avoid, a particular fear that he has, and you land on the dartboard with points whenever you, you recognize two facts here that are, that are plain. One is, he doesn't want to commit this sin with his mouth in the presence of the wicked. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Men, there are certain things that you may feel a need to tell your wife, or likewise the wife, her husband. But just because you recognize we need to have this conversation, you recognize it would be an evil for you to vent those same things to the boys or to gossip about them with your friends. And even so, it's become cool in certain Christian circles, a mark of maturity and, and sanctification. For you to vent how your soul feels about God. 
before the world, David does not concur. Second, David is in a trial. More specifically, he's under God's discipline and chastening. The sin that David wants to avoid here is akin to the sin that Job avoided initially. The sin that Job's friends even avoided initially until they spoke at length. And it wasn't simply that Job avoided this sin by not speaking altogether. He avoided the sin by guarding his words, speaking with reserve and reverence. After he lost his livestock, his servants, his children, we read, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, Yahweh has taken away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That is precisely the sin that I believe David is wanting to avoid, and specifically avoid doing it in the presence of the wicked. To charge God with wrong in the presence of the wicked. What is this silence all about? It is a silence under trial, under discipline, under chastening. It's the silence that David speaks of in Psalm 37 verses 1, 7, and 8 of not fretting. It's the silence that means being still before the Lord and waiting patiently for Him, Psalm 37, 7. In the previous psalm, you remember, David spoke of being deaf and mute before his enemies. There was a silence he had before his enemies. And an instance of this that we see lived out in the records of David's life is whenever Shimei was cursing him and throwing stones at him and his servants. And David says nothing to Shimei, but concerning those who are with him who want to put Shimei in his place, he tells them, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For Yahweh has told him to. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me and that Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today. What do you see David saying in that? But basically, Yahweh is given, Yahweh's taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. David wants to say that, and he doesn't want to say anything other than that. That's his fear. The preacher, the son of David, speaks in Ecclesiastes of the wisdom of this. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Proverbs 10, 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. 
Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So can you see the wisdom in a brief statement of worship such as Yahweh gave? Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Amen. But what is really at the heart of this kind of silence, stillness, quietness, what, what this silence of heart is really about is not about avoiding this fear of blasphemy. It is about submission and faith. To be still means to wait on God, to trust in God. The silent mouth is not primarily about avoiding the sin of complaint. It is about the absence of complaint in the heart for the presence of trust and faith. That is what's being aimed at. Not just the mere avoidance of a sin, but the present, the absence of that sin in the heart for the presence of trust and faith. Whenever David was simply quiet without, he was noisy within. Verse 2. I was mute in silence. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. If our mouths had zippers, if our mouths had zippers with locks, and we could throw away the key, it does not mean we could avoid this sin. When the soul is noisy... The mouth will speak. And if we try to suppress that when it eventually does burst, it will speak forth with all the more violence for the suppression. Jesus said it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And the Christian standard, the New American standard, may hint at something further that went wrong with David's silence. The translation of part of verse 2 is difficult. But where you have in the ESV, I held my peace to no avail, it could be, as the Christian standard has it, I kept silent even from speaking good, or the New American standard, I refrained even from good. Instead of capping off the lips altogether, even from speaking good, we need to cultivate good in the heart so that good comes from the mouth. Holy silence does not mean sealed lips. It means an open heart. Trusting God's discipline. Chastening His severity as a goodness and a grace to His people. But David's heart grew hot as he mused. And then he spoke. So what are we to make of this speaking? And before you condemn it altogether, just write it off. Consider Two things. One, David's vow is kept at least in part. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. David here does not blaspheme God before the wicked. He cries out in the presence of God. And second, these words are given by David to Jeduthun, the choir master. You see three chief men involved in the worship of Israel. Jeduthun, 
Asaph, and Heman. We have another psalm, I believe it's Psalm 70, that's also given, delivered to Jeduthun. We don't have a historical record here. So you're reading along in Chronicles and you see David's sin with Bathsheba. This is not a historical record in that way. We have poetry. We have a psalm. It's not just a song. It's not just poetic expression. This is a song written by Israel's king, delivered to one who is a choir master of Israel. What are we to make of these words? What are we to do with these words? I believe it's clear that as David speaks, he's still guarding his lips, choosing his words carefully. What I believe you have here is a lament for your lips when complaint is in your heart. David, it's it's as though he walks right up to the edge of complaint and pulls back and pours out his soul. The complaint is understood, but it is the lament that's spoken. The complaint is suppressed and the lament is expressed. Do you see what a grace and you, a gift you have here, saints? Whenever there is complaint in your heart and you don't want to blaspheme your God, you don't want to accuse Him of wrong, and you don't know what to say, here you have a lament. Put in your mouth when there's complaint in your heart, but you want to guard your ways. You want to guard your mouth. Here's a prayer to keep you from grumbling. Here's a cry to keep you from blaspheming. Thomas Brooks wrote a precious reflection on verse 9. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. The title, The Mute Christian Under the smarting rod. And he opens by saying, we want prudent silence under God's discipline. We do not want stoical silence, politic silence, he meant a silence of policy, foolish silence, sullen silence, forced silence, despairing silence. We want this prudent silence. And after listing eight things that this prudent silence involves... He goes on to speak of eight things it doesn't exclude. And I want to bring those before you, just list them real quick, so that you can see that David's speaking here doesn't work completely contrary to the silence that he's been speaking of. Brooks says a holy patience or a holy prudent silence under affliction does not exclude and shut out, one, a sense and feeling of our afflictions. Just because you make this vow, I want to be silent and still before my God waiting patiently on Him, all of a sudden means it doesn't hurt anymore. Two, prayer for deliverance from our afflictions. Three, 
men's being kindly affected and afflicted with their sins as the meritorious cause of all their sorrows and sufferings. Four, a holy silence does not exclude teaching and instructing others when they are afflicted. Doesn't exclude five, moderate controlled by moderate, he means controlled, moderate mourning or weeping under the afflicting hand of God. Six, sighing, groaning, roaring under afflictions. Seven, the use of lawful means whereby persons may be delivered out of their afflictions. And eight, a just and sober complaining against the authors, contrivers, abettors, instruments. He's getting the secondary causes of our afflictions. Prudent silence. I hope you see, you understand, does not exclude a great deal of speaking, expression. Godly silence isn't passive. It isn't inactive. It isn't inert. And to see this, turn with me over to Psalm 62. Psalm 62, notice the heading, to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, the Psalm of David. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. How long will you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. Do you see him complaining against the secondary causes of his affliction? In the midst of his silence? For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. He's talking about being silent And then he says, pour out your heart before him. These are not at odds. Indeed, if you don't pour out your heart before him, you will not be silent before him. The silence that David is speaking of there is a waiting, a trusting, a resting, a looking to God that involves Pouring out your heart before Him. That's what I take David to be doing at this point. There are complaints within. David has admitted that. But he's guarding his lips. He pours out his heart in lament to bring himself back to a place of silence of soul. So as we begin to look at David's lament, I think we do well to ask ourselves... What is then that assumed complaint that's here? And I think the answer is, it's a truth that previously gave David comfort. What's causing David's turmoil of soul as he sits silent? It's a truth that he said in Psalm 37 gave him comfort. Psalm 37, 
Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass. Wither like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh and He will give you the desires of your heart. Yes, the life of the wicked is short. But so too the life of the righteous. And it's that thought contemplated in the midst of this trial that lays upon David. It is not so much the wicked's prosperity. It's the righteous brevity and a hard brevity so often under God's chastening hand we can endure a short trial even a short trial that's hard but whenever you begin to sense that the trial is long and your life is so short that's whenever the soul is troubled Job Express this too. I'll warn you, if you found David's words uncomfortable, listen to Job's from chapter 7. Just a selection. Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are appointed to me. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. If I sin, what Do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You seek me, but I shall not be. If that makes you uncomfortable, ask yourself, have you suffered as Job? And if you were to, would you bear up so well? Now you hear faint echoes of Job's complaint in the 39th Psalm, don't you? But you notice what you don't hear. You notice the difference of tone? The difference of posture? Job says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And note the different posture that David assumes when he does speak. Verse 4. Oh Yahweh, make me to know my end. It's the posture of a humble learner. David is asking here to learn what he already knows. In the midst of trials and afflictions, is this not often exactly what we need to learn what we already know? Saints, you may know many things, but have you been taught them by the Lord? Let me illustrate it this way by appealing to your children. Children, you may have been taught that Jesus is Lord and Savior by your parents. But have you been taught by the Spirit of God that He is Lord, Christ is Lord and Christ is Savior? 
because there's all the difference between being taught from your parents and being taught by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's the difference between a heaven and a hell. And likewise, saints, there is all the difference in knowing some truth about God and being taught it by God Himself. How many of you have had this very experience, say, with the doctrine of election? Jonathan Edwards did. That whenever you initially learned those truths, they troubled you. But then, what once troubled you, as Edwards said, became sweet. And the reason why? It's because God taught you those truths. This is the very lesson. The lesson that David is is earnest to learn here. It's the lesson that the author of Ecclesiastes wrestled with. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The word you have is breath. In verse 5. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath is the very word that Solomon uses when he says vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Vanity, breath, same word. Solomon later reflects, in my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. And later still he writes, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. Now in Ecclesiastes, for a large part, you see the man wrestling with this lesson. What does it look like to learn this lesson? And I would say one of the biggest things of having learned this lesson is simply assuming the posture of a humble learner in the midst of Of such lessons being taught. That's a mark of humble silence. The young Jonathan Edwards resolved to be such a learner. Resolved to think much on all occasions about my own dying and of the common things which are involved with and surrounding death. To think much on that. Part of our problem is that we spend too much time plugging our ears to this lesson instead of learning it, reflecting on it, meditating, studying it. And so whenever test time comes, we are in turmoil because we have not prepared. James helps to drive this lesson home. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What does this lesson learn like? What does this lesson learned look like? Humility. Assuming this posture of a humble learner. It means the very kind of quietness of soul that David was aiming for. But don't let this transition escape you. 
Make me know my end. Measure of my days. How fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind. Surely a man. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth. And notice that with this transition... It is in regard to his own life that he speaks of brevity. But only when he transitions to they that he speaks of vanity. I think you see David as he's pleading already in this transition learning something. My life brief. And I have this in common with mankind. But their life. Vain. Jesus once told this parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But David is among those who have said to God, you are my portion. Saints, your life may be brief. And your brief years may be burdened with pain. But learn this lesson under the hand of God's chastening. Your life is not vain if you are in Christ. It is not for nothing. And isn't it striking then after taking such a posture of humble learning and speaking honestly... Reserved but reverent, David comes back to this quietness of soul. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? You see again the transition. My end, my days, how fleeting I am. Surely all mankind, a man, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth for it is you who have done it. What does this silence look like? Trust. Trusting God in His salvation and being silent under His sovereign hand. Deliver me. God's a salvation. You've done it. God is sovereign. Whenever it's hard to be still and keep quiet under God's chastening hand, remember these two truths. One, God is your Savior. Two, God is sovereign. That will both liberate you to cry out to God and it will constrain you from crying against God. God 
is the only one who can save you, and he's the very one that's bringing your trial and your chastening about. So how can you cry out against him? How can you not but cry out to him? If your soul isn't quiet under God's discipline, you are speaking out against both the one who is your Savior and the one who is sovereign. And so assume the posture of a humble learner. Cry out to God. Learn not only that your days are brief, learn that you are a sinner. And that He is both sovereign Lord and a gracious Savior. Trust Him. Quiet your soul. But again, David's silence speaks. Verses 10 through 13. Three desperate pleas cap off this psalm. First, remove your stroke from me. Verses 10 through 11. Under God's discipline, David feels spent, exhausted, and all that is dear to him in this world is consumed. And second, he asks, hear my prayer, verse 12. And he asks this upon the basis, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. What a humble image and a potent image. What's he drawing on? Well, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who dwelled in the land as sojourners. But David is among those who have long since enjoyed the land as their inheritance. But David is recognizing something in the midst of this chastening. Something that could escape those who enjoy greater blessings. The land was only a shadow. There is more than life under the sun. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These, the patriarchs, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. And then finally, third, you have this startling plea. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. What does David mean by that? The ironic blessing says that blessedness is God's face shining down upon us. His lifting the light of His countenance upon us. Well, David is not denying that. He's simply asking, God, remove your stern stare. Let my soul depart in peace without feeling your hot displeasure. If I'm to go to my grave, may I go to my grave? Not with your frown impressed upon my soul. You remember after Jesus had taught the crowds from Peter's boat? And he tells Peter to cast off and to cast out his net. And Peter says, we've done that all night. We've caught nothing, but we'll humor you. And then they begin to take in this catch that's so large the nets begin to break. Do you remember Peter's response? Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. I think it's something like that that's hitting David at this point. But David is not only 
keenly aware of his sin, as Peter was in that instance. David is very alert to God's chastening of that sin that he's aware of. That's why he cries out. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. As John Bunyan's Christian with his companion Hopeful approached the celestial city, he had a very similar experience. Now I further saw that betwixt them and the gate there was a river, but there was no bridge to go over. The river was very deep. The sight thereof Therefore, of this river, the pilgrims were much stunned. But the men that went with them said, You must go through, or you cannot come at that gate. The river is death. And as they begin to cross it, Christian despairs. I sink in the deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. Selah. And hopeful replies, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. Then said Christian, oh, my friend, the sorrows of death have encompassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with with that a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. And here, in great measure, he lost his senses, so that he could not neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met with, the way, met with in the way of his pilgrimages. Have you ever, in the midst of a trial or sensing God's discipline, had such a memory loss that you couldn't remember his faithfulness for years upon years past, heaped up like mountains? But all the words that he spake still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and heart fears that he he should die in that river and never obtain entrance in at the gate. Here also, as they stood by, perceived, as they, they that stood by perceived, he was in much in the troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. And this exchange between hopeful and Christian persists until we read this exchange. Then said hopeful, my brother, you have quite forgot the text where it is said of the wicked. There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God hath forsaken you but are sent to try you whether you will call to mind that which heretofore you have received of His goodness and to live upon Him in your distresses. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was as in a muse a while, to whom also hopeful added this word, Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Christian break out with a loud voice, Oh, I see Him again. And He tells me, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. But alas, for this psalm itself, there's no such happy resolution. 
it leaves us with David in his darkness. Most laments end with a turn. This one in Psalm 88 are some of the darkest of laments. We see no hope expressed. Most of them end on this high note of faith and confidence being expressed even though the trial remains. But this one ends on a minor key, hit hard, held out long, slowly fading. This psalm ends on Saturday. The Saturday after the crucifixion. The reality is that sometimes after we lament, sometimes after we assume the posture of a humble learner, sometimes after we begin to come back to this place of quietness of soul and stillness before our Lord and waiting patiently for Him, after we've poured out our hearts still, it feels like Saturday. And if that's where your soul is right now, take heart. Your Lord has promised He will not break the bruised reed or quench the smoldering wick. Maintain the posture of a humble learner. You don't need new information so much as you need your Lord to teach you. And what I believe you chiefly need to learn is this. It may feel like Saturday. But it is Sunday. I'm sure every one of us have had the experience of feeling like it's one day whenever it's really another. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of, of that. Even whenever you feel like it's another day, no matter how much you feel that, it does nothing to alter the calendar. It may throw you off, but it's not thrown the calendar off. The calendar says it is Sunday. It is A.D. It is Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. When you feel as though death encompasses you, remember, it has not encompassed your Lord. Christ is risen. Your going down to the grave changes nothing. His rising from the grave has changed everything. In this truth, find solace to silence your souls even whenever you come to that final and ultimate river, death. Pilgrim, your days here may be brief, but that's just it, isn't it? They are so very brief. Do not Despise the Lord's short disciplining to prepare you for an eternal inheritance in Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise and thank you for your good word. And I pray that it will settle deep into our souls, that we will, we will be taught this of you, so that we might receive your, your every trial, your every chastening, your discipline, 
that we would welcome it with a silence and a quietness of soul as humble learners. And that we would, we would have a kind of communion with you. Such that whenever such trials come, we could pour out our hearts and we would know where we could go into your word to find lament for our lips whenever complaint is in our soul. That you would, you would use such words to bring us back to a place of trust and rest, and waiting and patience. We ask this so that we might be, test, be, be witnesses before this world that Christ is all, that He's supreme, that He's our portion, that there's more to this life that there is a heaven and a hell. And that if you have Christ, you have all. And if you have not Christ, you have nothing. May we not be content just to say that with our mouths when it's easy, but to live it out with our lives when it's hard. To the glory of Christ, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.